As we turn to the scriptures this morning, I was, uh, came across a story from 1944 during the Second World War. Uh, it's a story of uh, near, obviously near the end of the war, and a uh, group of U.S. soldiers was given the task to go into a German village and take over the town and have to fight off the Germans, etc., right? And um, the, the commanding officer of that group of soldiers was, was really nervous about this, because at this point in the war, he's, he's been leading men for a while, and he's watched lots of men lose their lives for the, in, the, in this whole campaign, and um, so he was uh, not really looking forward to going into this because uh, all he saw was more opportunity for his men to be put in harm's way, to have danger and uh, risk their lives. And then uh, they had gained some intelligence that really encouraged them. So, uh, through uh, some of their intel workers, they had come across some very detailed plans of this village. You know, what shops were where, what the main streets were, where everything was, including uh, where most of the Germans had their defenses or where they would bunker their soldiers and stuff. So uh, what he did is he distributed this information to all of his uh, soldiers who were underneath him and said, you need to memorize this because this is going to be the key uh, to victory in this battle. And so before, on the day of uh, when they were supposed to go and uh, have this battle, he quizzed his soldiers real quick and to make sure they knew the facts, to make sure they really knew where the enemy was and how they could defeat him. And almost all of these soldiers had it down perfectly. So they go to battle, and uh, because of this intel, they had great success. They had victory, and, and there was very, very little uh, death to the U.S. soldiers. And it, this is a story that's been popular. And so years and years later down the road, this has become a place where tourists might go and visit, you know, as this landmark of World War II. And uh, one of the tour guys said, you know what, I'm going to do a little experiment. So he took the same exact intel uh, that was given to the U.S. soldiers, and he said, I want you guys as tourists, so imagine you going uh, over to Germany and being given this, uh, this intelligence. And he said, I want you to memorize it, okay? And we're going to have a quiz on it in a little bit to see if you could remember it, because try to put yourself in that situation where your life could be on the line. This could mean the difference between success and failure in battle. And so they go through this whole thing, and almost across the board, there was complete failure uh, to understand and memorize this intelligence on where uh, all the different places were on parts of the tourists. And so uh, this uh, tour guide who had conducted this experiment, you could say, concluded this. He said, the main difference between the tourists and the soldiers is for the soldiers, their lives were on the line. This information meant something to them. Their motivation for learning it was really, really strong. But for the tourists, oh, this is a fun activity to do on vacation. And in many ways, it gives this picture that motivation, our motivations for things, are incredibly important, incredibly valuable. Um, you would know in, in your relationships with other people, if you had a friend who was your friend simply because uh, you could benefit them in some way, that wouldn't mean much to you. But your friends that stand beside you because of who you are, that means something very significant. Our motivations are incredibly important. Just like for those soldiers, their motivation uh, to memorize that intel was to preserve their own lives and the lives of the men serving next to them. Well, Paul, this morning, we're going to see his deep and profound motivation for his entire life. Last week, we talked a little bit about um, 
Paul's circumstances and, and the fact that the gospel is still going forward, even though he finds himself in prison, things aren't going necessarily as planned, but he can rejoice in this. And last week we talked about having a gospel perspective and, and seeing our circumstances through the lens of the gospel. How is God working things out for the gospel ministry, for the ministry of his kingdom? Um, and Paul, in some ways, then was rejoicing and sharing with the Philippians, I'm rejoicing because of what God is doing through my circumstances. Um, but today, he's going to go a little bit deeper in that. And we start off in verse 18. He's going to say, I, yes, I do rejoice. And I will rejoice. Why? And he's going to go into his deeper motivation uh, for all of life. Now, when we come before a, a text such as this, and we come before an acknowledgement of our motivations, it's an important cause for us to stop and ask the question, why, are, why do we do the things that we do? Right? Maybe you're, you're doing something in your life, let's call it a, a ministry, something that's good and valuable. Are we engaged in a ministry simply because, A, nobody else is going to do it, so I'm going to do it myself, and that's your motivation behind it? Is it, B, because, well, I, I would like to see this happen, so I'm going to engage in this ministry? Is it, C, maybe... Other people could do it, but they wouldn't do it the way that you like to see it done, so then you're going to step in and do it because then you can have the control of the situation or not. Or is it that you want to see Christ honored and glorified, as we will see as Paul's deepest motivation in his life? So Paul's in prison, and he is rejoicing and explaining to the Philippians the motivation for his joy, the motivation for his life. So let's turn our attention this morning to our text, Philippians chapter 1. Uh, starting in the second part of verse 18 and going through uh, verse 26. Uh, Paul writes this, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we focus our attention to this uh, passage that you have brought before us this morning, I pray that our hearts and minds would be uh, focused uh, on you. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, help us to understand the truths of your scripture. Help us to, to see Paul's motivation, his heart, uh, Lord, as, as you used him in powerful ways to continue the gospel ministry. And, and even to this day, as we uh, open up this letter that he wrote to the Philippians during his time in prison. Lord, I pray that this would be a time that is honoring and glorifying to you in our attitudes, our attentions, and our affections. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul says, I will rejoice in the midst of my suffering. And as you read through these verses, 
you can almost get this feeling for Paul's deep affections for Jesus Christ. It's like Jesus is all over these verses. You know, everything about what Paul is communicating seems to hinge on Christ himself. And that's, uh, as he's sharing his heart, we see this time and time again through the book of Philippians. We've uh, seen it so far and we'll continue to see it. But Christ seems to be the central focus of everything about what Paul is seeking to accomplish. And so, as we look at our text this morning... Our, our main idea begins with Paul's fondness of Christ. Paul's fondness of Christ. And as you look at uh, Paul's affections for Jesus, and, and he seems to lead the way in this kind of thing. Everything comes back to Jesus, right? His uh, reason for doing ministry, his reason for living in general, his uh, reason that he rejoices in the prospect of even losing his life, the reason that he can rejoice in his present circumstances, all of this comes back to Christ and his affections for him. And so it would be helpful for us to stop and ask the question, why in the world does Paul love Jesus so much? Right? If you were to look past the, okay, we're reading the Bible, and Paul is writing in Scripture, which is in the Bible, it would make sense that he would love Jesus. And we ask that question, why does Paul love Jesus so much? Why does he love him so much? And and I think if we were to put ourselves in Paul's shoes, we could grasp this deep affection in a number of ways. One, I think Paul remembers very uh, truthfully and very honestly his uh, deep sin that he had committed in his life. Now, Paul's a guy uh, that we'll learn throughout this book as well that he... According to the standards and expectations of the religious leaders, he set the way. He was exactly what you would expect him to be. He met the expectations, if not exceeded them. And so you wonder in some ways, well, what's, what's this sinfulness that Paul has found himself in? Well, Paul, has, uh, in his zeal for the law of God, found himself doing a great amount of evil. He would find himself killing and arresting Christians, which is actually the, the point of testimony in Paul's life where he would come to know Jesus as his Lord and his Savior, right? He was on his way to Damascus um, with the intent to arrest and if not murder more Christians for following this cult of a way as he viewed it at the time. And, and this was his intent, his mission in life. And Christ met him on the road and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And this moment would change the course of Paul's life forever. No longer is Paul going after Christians, but now Paul finds himself with the Christians saying, Jesus is my Lord. He is my Savior. I'm a changed man. And I think Paul recognizes the depths of his sin because he can say, listen, I had it going on for me. I was meeting the expectations. If you were to look at the law, and we'll talk about this in weeks to come, I had it perfect, but I was still so deeply sinful. I was so deeply sinful. And it is the great love of Christ, the great grace of Christ, that has bought me from my sin, that has transformed my life. Think of being in Paul's shoes, a man who once killed people for following Jesus, arrested people for following Jesus did whatever he could to uh, stop the, the ministry of the gospel. And then Jesus himself would meet him and say, Paul, I am calling you to be my uh, messenger, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. The man who once uh, was seeking the end of Christ is now seeking the glory of Christ. What an amazing testament to stop and look back for Paul and say, wow, I, I am so undeserving of this uh, calling that Christ has put on my life. 
And so Paul has a deep love and, and a significant understanding of the significance of his calling. That, man, now not only have, have, has my message turned to 180, that I'm not saying forsake Christ, you know, resent Christ, give him up, but revel in Christ. Christ is the Son of God. And now he has this significant calling to go and take this gospel to places that it's never been before in life. And so Paul has this deep and profound love for the person of Jesus Christ. And it's important to note it's not a deep and profound love for the idea of Jesus Christ. It's not a deep and profound love for the relationship or the, the religion of Jesus Christ, but with the relationship of Jesus Christ. Paul's deepest desires in life are Jesus himself to know him more, to have the opportunity to serve him more. Paul is the deep fondness of Christ. And so as we look to this morning at Paul's motivations, the motivations behind why he lives, right, to this iconic verse that you've probably, if you've been around church for any amount of time, you've heard, if not memorized, is to live as Christ, to die as gain, that Paul could say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And why could he say that? What are the motivations behind it? How could we say that? How could we say to live is Christ, to die is gain? And it begins with our affections for Jesus Christ. Our affections for him as a person, not as the religion. So I want to urge you to think of what Christ has done on your behalf. In working with Mario, some of you guys may know Mario. Uh, he's one of the student ministry pastors that... Uh, Sugar Grove, and he always will say, We live the Christian life motivated out of our gratitude for what Jesus has done on our behalf. To think back to that time when you came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. When you trusted in him for the first time, you recognized your sinfulness for, for the evils and wickedness that it was, and then uh, also saw the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and said, Hey, I don't define you by your sin, but I have taken your sin upon myself, and I have given you my righteousness. And you, when we grasp the weight of that reality, man, it transforms the way we look at Jesus. He's not some person who's sitting around seeking to judge you and condemn you. But Jesus is a gracious and merciful Savior who has come to uh, serve you. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. Jesus was, was humble enough to submit himself to an earthly body, to submit himself to the cross on your behalf. And you think of the ways that Christ has been with you since. right? It's not salvation in a moment, but salvation in a lifetime. That Jesus didn't say, okay, you're saved, and now he just leaves you on your way. But Jesus has saved you from your sins, redeemed your life, and then he sticks with you every day. When we wander, when we have our times of struggle and, and our doubts about life and, and our uh, looking at our circumstances and, and taking our eyes off of Christ, he doesn't say, oh man, what, what good are you? You can't, you can't stick with me? He stays right there, and he helps you and sustains you through the deepest trials of life. That in, in that jail cell that Paul would find himself in, Christ was with him. In your super messed up, complicated situation at work that you're trying to figure out and deal with and, and all the frustrations with it, Christ hasn't left you to say, okay, go figure this out on your own. He's there with you. 
as you navigate that difficult family relationship and uh, that you're working through, Christ didn't say, hey, I've redeemed you, but now figure it out. He said, I, I will be there with you in the midst of it. I will help lead you and guide you. I will share your burdens. I love uh, 2 Corinthians starts out talking about uh, God being the God of all comfort, right? What an amazing truth. Christ has done so much. And none of it do we deserve but he's done it out of his deep love for us, his love for us. And so I want to encourage us that our affections for Christ aren't for the sake of getting to heaven. I, I loved in our small group this week, we spent a good chunk of time talking about this, right? That uh, Christ is the end goal, right? To, for Paul to know Christ is the end. Not to know Christ so that he could get to heaven. Not to know Christ so he could avoid the difficult circumstances of life and, and see it as this uh, button that says, hey, we're going to fix all things about life now because you love Jesus, life's going to be easy. Life's going to go well. You're going to be prosperous. All this That's not Paul's attitude. His attitude and his affection is for the person of Jesus Christ, no matter the difficulty. For those of you who are married, when you got married, you probably said a vow that said something along the lines of in sickness and in health. You are going to stick by that person's side. In the good times and in the bad, you are going to stick with that person. And no matter how much money you have or how poor you may be, you're going to stick by that person. It is a commitment to marriage because that person is greater than the circumstances that you're going to face in your life. And you would rather go through the mud of life with that person by your side than to do it by yourself. Such is the truth with Jesus Christ. That we would seek to be with him. Not just to serve him. Not just to, to love him. To come to church and, and do all these different things so that we could somehow merit blessings from Christ. But that Christ himself would be the blessing. To know him and have a relationship with him. So it begins with Paul's affections, his fondness of Christ. And then I'm going to do a little bit of an audible on your outlines this morning. And it's not a big one, but if you're, if you're following your outlines, I'm going to ask you to do something. At the beginning of uh, point two where it says develops, I want you to cross develops out and write produces. And we're just going to, basically what we're going to do is flip that first word in points two and three. And then do the same thing with three. And cross out producing and write develops. Because I think it's, it's Paul's affections for Christ that produces a fearlessness in all of his circumstances. His affections for Jesus produce a fearlessness in all of his circumstances. It's not that they just develop over time, but because of his deep and profound love for Christ, man, I can be fearless in all my times. You look at our text this morning and Verse 19, Paul says that I'm confident of this, that this will turn out for my deliverance, right? In, what, in two ways, through the prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Spirit of God. And I believe when Paul's speaking of his deliverance, he's viewing his circumstance as a win-win, right? In, in one sense, when he speaks of his deliverance, I believe he is speaking of his physical deliverance from prison, but every other time that this word deliverance is used in the New Testament, it's used to speak of salvation. So I think Paul, on one hand, is saying, I am trusting that the outcome of this is going to be for my deliverance. Either A, I'm going to be released from prison and 
uh, be freed in that regard, or B, this is going to result in the end of my life, and then I will be delivered and find the fulfillment of my salvation as I enter into communion uh, in face-to-face relationship with Jesus Christ. So I think for Paul, this is a win-win. And he has confidence in this through the support of the church and through the ongoing help of the Holy Spirit. And so as uh, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, there is a component to it where he's saying, listen, continue to partner with me in prayer. I covet your prayers. Because I know it is because you are praying for me that there is going to be an outworking of God's grace in my life that is going to help me to remain faithful and not ashamed in this moment that Christ will be honored in my death or in my life. And so we pray for each other. We support each other through the prayers of the church. Paul had a deep and profound confidence that prayer mattered. Prayers really did something. When is the last time we have spent consecrated time to pray specifically for the spiritual development and assurance and conviction and strength of the saints in Jesus Christ? By name, by campus, by church, by nation. To seek God's continued faithfulness to them. That God would enable them to stay strong in the midst of their circumstances through the help of His Spirit to seek prayer, to seek the Lord, to seek the benefit of others. And so it's his expectation that because of these things, he's not going to be ashamed. Because he loves Christ so dearly, Paul can stand here in the face of his trial and say, listen, I'm not going to be fearful one way or the other. Either I'm going to die as a result of uh, their decision in this trial, or they're going to release me, and I'm not worried about it one way or the other, because it's a win-win. On the one hand, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And this is one of those verses that, you know, we can look at and say, and ask that question almost seemingly uh, making sense and saying, well, wait a minute, as Christians, should we desire to die? Should we just want to die so that we can go be with Christ? And I don't think that's what Paul is communicating here. I don't think he's saying, listen, I want to die so I can avoid the sufferings of this life and just go be with Jesus Christ. Because he talks about this deep and profound desire to also stay. Because there is ministry to be done, gospel work to be done. And I would think that there's a, a, the motivation behind this is seen even in this statement, but not in uh, oftentimes how our English translations translate verse 21. If you look at verse 21 with me, it says this, right? For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And I don't want to muddy the waters by talking about Greek tenses and all this stuff because they're complicated, right? And, and I can have a hard time with them, but What a better translation for this would have been, literally given Paul's words, is not to live as Christ and to die as gain, but to say to live as Christ and to have died is gain. And I think his his purpose in saying it this way is not to say, man, I just seek death, but I think Paul's desire is to seek the outcome, what comes after his death, which is fellowship with Christ in a different way than he's experiencing it now. It's not death itself that Paul longs for, but it is a fellowship, a communion with Jesus Christ face to face. So having died, it opens the door to this new stage, to be with Jesus. And for this, Paul says, I rejoice. This is gain. Death itself is not gain, but to be with Jesus is gain. And that, I believe, is his heart in all of this. 
Because as you go on in verse 23, um, Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And there is a component of the, the Christian faith that we have Christ with us now. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ now, but there is a greater experience of this that's going to come in the future. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say to depart and be with Christ. There is something greater that we long for as believers to be with Jesus Christ in the flesh, face to face, to rejoice in that relationship, to experience the the fulfillment of our salvation, the deliverance from our struggles with with sin and temptation, the the, uh, deliverance from our frailties of our weak bodies, the struggle with illness and struggle with weaknesses, and, and to be glorified in Christ to be with him one day. That is Paul's great and longing desire to, hey, to have died. Listen, death, yeah, it's maybe not the most pleasant thing, but what comes after is so great to be with Jesus. And so I, I'm torn between the two. I, I want to go. I want to go be with him. But on the same hand, I think being here is more important for you guys. I think being here is more important for you guys. And so... We see Paul's heart communicated as he goes through this struggle, and we get a glimpse of this. His deepest longings in life, in in life or in death, is ultimately for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that is how Paul can face the circumstances that he can still find himself rejoicing. There is something about being able to long for going home to be with Jesus that should be true and evident in our hearts as believers. We, Bree and I, right after Christmas, went out to see my family. And we spent a week there with them. And, and it's great, because I don't ever get to see my family. They live on the other side of the country, right? So to go and be with them is really awesome. But by the time, like, a week and a couple days was coming near the end, you know what I was feeling? I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to go home, right? Not because they were, it's just you long to be home. You have a place that is home. It is comfortable for you. You want to be there. I believe Paul lived his life with this longing to be home, where he belonged, to be with his Savior. But not so much that he would say, well, I forget this whole thing. I'm just, I'm just going to sit here and long for that time to come and wish for it. But as long as he was here, he had work to do. He had work to do. And so his, uh, his fondness of Christ produces fearlessness in all of his circumstances which develops fruitfulness for the cause of Christ and it develops it because the fruitfulness of ministry doesn't often happen right away Right? We sometimes want to jump into a ministry, and we've had youth group leaders at Sugar Grove uh, that we say, hey, here, we're going to have you serve with this small group of students. And I can think of our, our sixth grade girl leaders this, this year. Okay? They're a perfect example of this. They're excited and gung-ho to go into it, and they get into this group of sixth grade girls, which I'll be fair and honest, were difficult at times. And, and these leaders, we tell all of our leaders going into it, don't expect anything major in the first two, three months. Really, don't expect anything major, maybe even in the first year of working with this small group. It's in the long haul that we begin to see fruit. And so um, a couple weeks into this or a month or so in, we, these leaders come and they say, I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm at my wit's end. It's so difficult. They're just, they're, they're hard to work with. And you encourage to press on encourage press on and you know the amazing thing 
this, this absolutely floors me. The next week after they had this very difficult conversation with us, um, they were a little late getting into their small group time with the girls, and they walk in to find what? Not these sixth-grade six girls, okay? Not these sixth-grade girls being crazy and goofy together, but these sixth-grade girls who had sat down, opened the Bible, and were working through their study together without the leadership of an adult. You, on the one hand, they're like, one week, what do we do? We can't, get, we can't even get them to focus. The next week, the next week, they were, they were in it. The momentary struggles may be difficult, but when we view our lives for the sake of Christ and his glory, man, you can push through. Push through. Develop a fruitfulness for the cause of Christ. A fruitfulness for the cause of Christ. Now when Paul uh, says here in verse 20, I think there's a, a profound word that's a simple three-letter word that we might glance over, but he says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. There was a, an, a zeal for the moment to take advantage, to seize the moment for Christ's honor. I think that is such a profound perspective for Paul that, you know, his attitude isn't, you know what, I, I am going to seek to honor Christ when I lead that study with you guys. I'm going to seek to honor Christ when I can be reunited with you again. But Paul says that even now, now, that Christ will be honored, whether by life or by death. What a question to ponder. How can we best utilize our moments for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ? Not waiting for later. I remember as a student, I remember thinking, man, someday when I grow up, I'm going to do something for Jesus. And I had someone challenge me, why are you going to wait? Why are you going to wait? Why are you going to wait for that next season of life when the, when the kids graduate? Why are you going to wait until you know, the grandkids grow up or when you start having grandkids or when you have kids or whatever this, the next season of life is? Sometimes we long so much for that next season that we say, well, when this happens or when this changes, then I will be able to do something for Jesus Christ. What about now? How can you use where God has put you right now for his honor, for his glory? Who has he positioned around you that you can minister to, that you can build up in the faith? Who has he put you around that you can share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ with, who, who may be floundering? These people maybe are, are looking for hope somewhere, something to hold on to, and you could say, I found the greatest rock and redeemer that I could ever have. His name is Jesus, and let me tell you all about him. Because it's not just about what Jesus gives, it's about Jesus himself. To know Jesus. I bet you don't have a hard time talking about your spouse with people. You know him pretty well. And there's times in life where you realize you know your spouse a lot better than you think you do. I love those times. When Bree will say something, I'll be like, okay, what are you, like, What's going on here? She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you always do this when you're looking for an answer or something. She's like, do I really? I'm like, yeah, I didn't even realize that. We know the intricacies of our spouses. 
of your children, of the people you love. You know who they are. You can talk about them with confidence. If we know who Jesus is, sharing our faith doesn't become an intellectual pursuit. Sharing our faith doesn't become uh, something where we have to have an argument with someone and, and prove his existence. It is a sharing of a person who we know. And anybody can do that. Every single one of us sitting in this room, every single one of us who claims to know Jesus Christ can talk about who Jesus is. We don't have to get into all the theology of things. That, that is so helpful when we, when we view sharing our faith simply as a theological argument, it becomes exhausting. But when sharing our faith is to share about who our Savior is, then it becomes fun. Then it's fun to brag on our, our Savior. Paul's desire here, if you look at the end um, in verse 26, is so that in me you may have ample cause to, what, glory in Paul? To glory in each other? No, to glory in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, listen, through my ministry, my goal is not that you would say, hey, Paul, great pat in the back. You're the man. You know, we follow Paul. He's the guy. But that because of Paul's ministry, these people, these Christians would glory, would brag, would boast, would find all their deepest uh, uh, joys, their, their fulfillments, not in his ministry, but in Jesus Christ. As we serve, we have this unique opportunity to not say, hey, look at me, but to, to look at Jesus. There's a, a t-shirt that I saw one time that says, we're supposed to be the moon, right? And you're like, you look at the shirt and you're like, that's a weird shirt. But the idea of the shirt is because what does the moon do? Does the moon create its own light? No, the moon reflects the light of the sun and lights up the night, right? And so the light of the moon truly is the light of the sun. And the, the idea of the shirt is that we reflect the light of Christ, that people wouldn't see our own light, see us and marvel in us, but they would marvel in Christ. What an opportunity, a privilege that we have, that we can rejoice in all of our circumstances because Christ is the prize. Christ is the prize. And so... Paul speaks of, uh, he speaks of this fruitful ministry that he's going to have, and, and I believe that he, he looks at this fruitful ministry as he's staring in, in many real ways for Paul. Paul is staring the potential of death in the face and saying, that could really happen like tomorrow. That's a real possibility. And in and, and Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter 90, verse 12, it says, So teach us to number our days, so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Death is one of those things we do not talk about that often because death is painful. Death is not one of those things we want to think about because death is painful. But there is a component that Scripture teaches, a prayer to God to teach us to number our days, to deal with our mortality, to look at it and say, if I know that I only have 24 hours, you ever been asked that question? If you had 24 hours left to live, what would you do? That would change the way you live your life. And as believers, when we look at our lives through that vantage point, that listen, we have a limited amount of time that God has given us as a gift on this earth. View it in light of your mortality. Your mortality doesn't have to be a bad thing when you look at Christ as the prize. Because on the other end of mortality is being in heaven with Jesus Christ. Is life eternal. 
So when we number our days, man, having that perspective in life really gives you a drive to make the most important things the most important things while we're here. Because while 80 years, 90 years, 70 years, whatever it is, it seems like a long time in the moment, man, it is that fast. How will we use our days? How can we use our days to best bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ? That we can pursue or or persevere through these momentary uh, struggles for the glory and honor because what is to come is far greater than any any good thing that we can have on earth. But it's also way better. The glory of eternity with Christ is way better than any suffering that we can experience on earth. So man, does that motivate us to say, let us use, let me use every breath that I have for the glory of Jesus Christ. It gives us some perspective on life. That's helpful for our wisdom. So Paul teach, uh, talks about this fruitful ministry that he desires to have with the Philippians. And if I'm to live in the flesh, fruitful labor for me. Um, going down to verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may be able to ample, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. So I I believe as Paul outlines as he's looking at at these believers and he's saying, listen, to live in the flesh means fruitful ministry. He doesn't look at the fruitful ministry that he longs to have and say, man, I want you you to, to start another church here. I want you to join this ministry, that ministry. His desire in his fruitful ministry is that they would progress in their faith, that they would have growth in their faith, that they would grow in their joy in the faith, and that they would be able to glory in Jesus Christ. It is a maturity as a believer that he is seeking for them to grow. And so speaking of their growth in the faith, Paul's desire in in growth in the faith is, yes, an obedience standpoint. Why? Is obedience to Christ the end all, the morality of the Christian faith? Is that what this is all about? Is that why we come and we gather on Sundays and at other times throughout the week to discuss the morality of the Christian faith? While God has called us to live our lives in a moral way and has given moral standards and has given a law that says conduct your life in such a way, he doesn't do it so that we can check off the boxes and say, look at me. But Jesus tells us that if we love him, then we will obey his commands. So as we gather as believers and we open God's word and we, we study it, we don't do so with the intent to say, hey, I want to just be a good moral person. We do it because we say, if Christ has called me to something, I want to follow. I want to obey because of my love for him. So we spur each other on and that is why Christ should be the focal point of our gatherings together. That is why Christ is the focal point of their teachings from his word. As Christ met with his, or walked with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he talked about how all the scriptures pointed to him. See, the law of Christ without the person of Christ becomes empty religion. It becomes draining, it becomes a burden. But when we see the law of Christ in the person of Christ, then Christ is what it's about, and it becomes a blessing. It becomes a joy to participate in. So Paul desires to see these Philippians to grow in their faith, 
to, to grow in greater obedience, a greater appreciation of the Lord, to grow in their joy in the Lord. Joy for the Christian is a natural outflow of authentic faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean difficult times aren't going to come? Absolutely not. We're looking at Paul in prison, okay? Some of the worst times may come, but in the midst of those, joy can still be a character trait of who you are. You can still be a joyful person and suffer well through the trials of life. And lastly, to glory in Christ, which we've talked about. Are the ministries that you are a part of, whether in leading, in serving, or as a participant, are they focused on Christ? Are they pointing you to Christ? Are we pointing others to Christ? Is it about the honor and glory of Christ? Is it about us finding joy in Christ? Is it about Jesus? The title of today's message is Live Hard, Die Free. It's because Paul had this mindset that to live was going to be hard work. Not burdensome hard work, but that he was going to work so hard because he knew he had only a moment's time to do a kingdom impact. He longed to go be with Christ. But to be here meant that God still had purpose for him. That God still was calling him to greater ministry. That Paul had a unique opportunity only while here in life to minister to others, to build them up in the faith, to, to take the gospel to lost souls. Because let me tell you, when we go to be in heaven with our Savior someday, we won't have that opportunity anymore. We won't have the opportunity to share the gospel with people who still need to hear it. To take the light to the darkness. Because we will be in all-encompassing light. We have an opportunity before us to live hard. As long as Christ has put you here, live hard for Him. For Him. For His cause. For His glory. Live hard for Christ, but then die free. That at the end of life, we don't have to be uh, afraid of death itself. Because we know of what's to come on the other side. Death, where's your sting? The hope we have in Christ teaches us that even now in life, we don't simply live life for Christ, but we live life with Christ. And when we live life with Christ, there is rejoicing and joy in all circumstances of life. There is rejoicing at the prospect of death. There is rejoicing in our sufferings. There is rejoicing in the growth of faith. There is rejoicing in the, in the, convert, uh, the conversion of lost souls to Christ. There is much to rejoice about. As we leave today, leave with this idea. If you put all the things together we talked about, Paul's fondness of Christ produces fearlessness in all circumstances and develops fruitfulness for the cause of Christ. Listen, it is Christ in life. Christ in death, Christ in all. Let Christ be the focal point of your life and you will have joy inexpressible.